Well, today we arrive at Romans chapter 7. I want to encourage you to turn there. And we will read the first 12 verses together this morning. Let's stand as we acknowledge that this is God's holy word, inspired, authoritative for us today. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you should not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And even in these times when it seems complicated or at least complex, we pray that you would help us to focus our minds and to settle our hearts and to hear what you would teach us from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a while since I last preached on Romans chapter 7, and every time, I, every time I read and think to teach on this chapter, the first part is, is still a little surprising, this whole analogy that Paul makes between the law and Christ and marriage and so on. Verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And he goes on to, to raise this analogy, this example of marriage, as what happened with us. In Genesis 2.24, tells us that God intended marriage to unite two individuals, and that that union was so important that Matthew 19, 6, Jesus says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate apart. So the only thing that God does intend that should separate two married people is death. And so Paul says that when we were unbelievers, this is this analogy that comes up, dead in our sins, that we were married to the law. 
And just as a man and woman become one flesh and their relationship cannot be severed except by death, so a lost person is considered one, if you will, with the law. In union with the law. And here's where that analogy maybe makes sense, and that is, as unbelievers, there was nothing we could do to sever our relationship with the law. We could not divorce ourselves from the law because only death could remove or change that relationship. And the amazing reality is that God did that. He widowed us. Well, actually, technically, he made the law a widower. Because in Christ, we died to sin and to the law. Paul says that we died through the body of Christ, which is, of course, a reference to Christ's death on the cross. Now, in chapter 6 of, of Romans, Paul writes, All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's what Paul says. And then in Colossians 2.11, Paul adds, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, again, having been buried. There's that, that idea, been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's what Colossians says. So in these passages, and in others like them, Paul says that we were, in essence, crucified with Christ baptized into the baptism which Jesus told his disciples in the upper room that he was about to endure on the cross. It would be a baptism into the Father's wrath against sin. And Paul says that in that moment, the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which would be the requirements of God's justice and of his law, all of that was also nailed to the cross and wiped out. So when Christ died, you, the believer, also died. And making this analogy work, your marriage with the law was severed. And any authority and and headship which the law once possessed over you was removed by the only one who had the authority to do so, and that was God. Now, thankfully, Jesus didn't remain in the grave, nor did you. When Jesus rose, you rose. Now, here's where this analogy comes in. There's this idea of dying in Christ, severing your bondage to the law, no longer married to the law, if you will, but like the woman whose husband has died, you are now released from the law, free to marry a different husband, namely Christ. And perhaps it might be helpful to ask why Paul says that we are, in essence, remarried, right? Were we in a bad marriage to the law? A marriage that was ended by death and now we're free to marry for love. After all, we didn't pick our first marriage to the law, right? We were born into sin and we were born in under the law. Is that the way it is? Well, it's not that that is untrue in some sense. But a better, more complete answer is found by Paul in verse 4. We were married to Christ 
so that we might bear fruit for God. And that is an important statement. Not only by telling us of the blessing of marriage to Christ, but by implying what bondage to the law could not produce. It could not produce good fruit. If you let that sink in for a moment, all of those who attempt to please God by the law cannot produce good fruit. How can that be? Well, what does verse 5 say? While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit, what? For death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And if you break down those two verses piece by piece, while we were living in the flesh means the time pre-redemption, pre-salvation, when we were, that word in Greek is enveloped or encased by the flesh. Paul uses the term flesh here to mean our sin and the world's systems and values as opposed to the values of the Spirit. So we were once wrapped in, surrounded by the world's system in rebellion to God. Our values were the world's values, the devil's values. Paul says that in that state... Our sinful passions, which the other places summarizes as the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of that was increased. By what? Did you notice what Paul says increased or aroused those passions? By the law. How is that possible? If you could understand this point, you will understand something key to this whole chapter and really to the entire Christian life. Does the law make you evil? No. That's not what Paul is saying. We already know from other scriptures that we are born into sin, with a sin nature, desiring wickedness all the time, 100% dominated by the flesh. We have sinful passions. That means we already have morally wicked hearts The law didn't cause all of that. So how does the law make those appetites worse instead of better? You'd think that with a rule book, so to speak, of how to live in a way that pleases God, that we would have everything we need and that we would actually get better and not worse. That's what you would expect, but that's not the case. When the law tells us that we should do something good, our sinful natures rebel and do evil instead. In fact, the more the law tells us to do, the more we rebel. And yet the law is no more to blame than an x-ray machine is to blame for revealing a tumor. But the truth is that the good laws of God don't just reveal sin. They aggravate or increase our sinfulness. The law actually makes a bad situation worse. That's what Paul's saying here. And you can already hear the objections. Especially parents. What can we do? Are you saying that we shouldn't teach our children about morality? That it will only make them more sinful? That we shouldn't have rules in our home? Well, in one sense... 
Yes, telling any unregenerate person about morality will only cause them to sin more. That's not to say that you shouldn't have rules. God doesn't remove his law. The law reveals sin. But what Paul is saying is the law does not produce good fruit. It only increases the bad fruit. Let me say it again. The law does not produce good fruit in your life. It increases the bad fruit. It has no power in itself to produce anything. And the fact is that as you create the rules of your home, it will cause your sinful children to sin more. The only way to produce good fruit is by being married to Christ and led by his spirit. That's a hard one for us as parents. Because we want to keep sending our children back to the law. We want to send them back to the rules, but the only thing that will motivate them truly to obey God is to point them to Christ and pray that the Holy Spirit will motivate them out of a love for God. So parents, remember that your children will not learn to obey by learning even more rules. Realize that the more reflective those rules are of God's law, which they should be, the more likely they will be to incite greater rebellion in your children. That doesn't mean that you stop disciplining them. God continues to discipline us, but it means that we cannot afford to only point them to the rules. Does that make sense? They must be constantly pointed to Christ as well, because he alone can change the heart. And because that's such an important point, Paul says it in a different way in the next six verses, but asks the obvious question. And he does the same thing in other chapters, so this is important. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is that the natural conclusion? One of the things I love about Romans is as he's laying out this argument, chapter to chapter, he anticipates the very natural questions that we ask as conclusions to his points. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, was it bad to be married, if you will, using that earlier analogy, to the law? Well, the law incites greater rebellion, greater sin, and so it must be bad. That's what we think is a conclusion to all of this. But Paul says, well, no. (laughs) He says, certainly not. He says, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And perhaps the best way to understand this point is to think of going back to parenting, parenting young children. One of our grown children, Casey, and his wife, Kelsey, have twins, Ellie and Lauren, both 18 months old. And Ellie, she can be content playing with toys in a single spot, just set her down, and she'll play with them. Lauren, she's a runner. As soon as you set her down and turn around, she's off running, and she's a climber. So Casey and Kelsey have to be vigilant to set boundaries for her, or she will open cabinets, get her feet on shelves, she will quickly be victoriously standing with arms outstretched on top of the kitchen sink. It'll be a miracle, actually, if she reaches adulthood. So, of course, the boundaries are for Lauren's protection. Listen to this verse from Paul in Galatians 3, 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
So the law was a guardian, a parent, that taught us what to do, what not to do for our own protection. It set boundaries that if crossed would result in our harm. You children may not always comprehend why your parents don't let you do certain things, just like you probably don't always obey. But most of you have learned to trust your parents, just like our grandchildren have learned to trust their parents. And in time, perhaps you will develop greater obedience, even to the point that you start to understand why your parents didn't allow you to do certain things. There will come a time, I pray, when you will want to do the right things out of a desire to please God and because you love Him and you love His ways. But, and you knew that there would be a caveat, but in our flesh we don't like boundaries. We don't like commands as children and the truth is we don't like them as adults much either. And you've seen plenty of toddlers who get upset when their moms or dads use words like no or can't or shouldn't or must. And we aren't, we aren't any better. We're all a bit like Lauren, defiantly climbing to the top of the kitchen sink and screaming if she has to be pulled down. Or perhaps like Esau, right? Willing in our flesh to trade anything, even our birthright, for a plate of stew to satisfy our hunger of the moment because... Our flesh cares nothing for happiness tomorrow or for true joy or peace of heart in the future. What it wants is gratification right now in the present at any cost. And when it sees a boundary fence, instead of making a smart decision and staying on the safe side of the fence away from danger, it prompts us to want to jump the fence. Why? Why would we do that? Why would we place ourselves in danger? Because when we do so, we're saying, nobody is going to tell me what to do or how to do it. And any danger down the road is not worth compromising my pleasure and my autonomy in the present. And that's the legacy of our first parents. It's the heart of the sin of Adam and Eve. You see a sign on a door that says, do not enter, what's your first inclination? We at least want to take a peek inside, right? If I see a detour sign, I'm not overly excited about taking a five-mile alternate route. I think to myself, it's Saturday. I bet they finished their work on Friday. They just haven't taken the signs down. There's nobody there yet. I'm not going through a construction zone. I can drive through the... Look, there's somebody else doing it right there. And because you laugh, I know you do it too. (laughs) Look at verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. It's interesting there what he's saying. The word dead is, is probably not the best translation in the English Standard Version. Instead, we should read something more from the Greek like asleep or dormant. When the law enters in, sin wakes up. In verse 9, Paul says that it comes alive. Did you catch that? When the law enters the picture, sin wakes up. And what does it do? 
It produces in us all manner of evil desires, but it does so through the law. Some of you for school have read Augustine's book, Confessions, kind of an autobiography. And he writes how when he was young, he and a group of children, friends, went into a neighbor's field. It's a famous example. Most Many of you know it, even if you haven't read Confessions, where he goes and he steals pears. So imagine what happens from the story. Augustine and his friends, they go through and they are shaking the neighbor's pear trees, knocking down a large number of pears. And then they carry them off and they eat a few, but throw most of the pears to some pigs. Why? Was it because they looked especially delicious? No. No. Augustine says they were beautiful, yes, they were part of God's creation, but that's not why we took them. They had similar things at home. What Was it that he was hungry? He needed something to eat. And that wasn't it either because, as he writes, we threw most of the pears to the pigs. Did he want to be approved by his friends? Because they were doing it, I should do it. Well, that was part of the reason he wrote but it did not explain why his friends, like himself, should have encouraged him to do such a wrong thing. Why would stealing somebody's things ever be praiseworthy? What does he write? Those of you who've read it know that he says, the real reason was that I picked them that I might steal. I loved nothing in that moment except the pleasure of taking them because the law said that I couldn't. He says, my desire, and this is, I'm kind of paraphrasing this in the, the words of Paul, my desire to steal was awakened by society's command not to steal, or the Lord's command not to steal. And it's the same thing that happens when we touch the wet paint because there's a sign that says don't touch wet paint. In telling us not to do something, the law actually, sin wakes up, says you could, you could do it. And in telling us not to do something, the law starts us thinking about it. And because we are rebellious people, we soon find ourselves wanting to do the very thing that the law told us not to do. So friends, as good as the law may be, like Augustine, we rebel because we have inherited the sinful nature of fallen Adam. That's what Paul is talking about. The law reveals what is good. Our nature is such that sin takes and seizes the opportunity afforded by God's commands, arouses our passions, our desires to exalt ourselves, to do now, to to be gratified in the present, and it kills us. And that's why we should read those first four verses that we have died to the law with joy that our bondage to the law could lead us nowhere and that has been broken that union in Galatians 3 Paul asks another related question from earlier 
Remember in Romans, he said, is the law sin? Now he says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? And the answer again, certainly not. For if the law, a law had been given that could give life, if there was such a law, right? If there was a law that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Any possible system, any possible set of rules that could have in itself produced life, then righteousness could have been through that. But there is no, what is the implication of Paul's statements there? There is no possible law that God could have given that would produce life. Why? It can't because we are by nature sinful. We transgress, we sin, we do cross any holy law that God gives or could give. And that's why Paul concludes what we read just a little bit earlier there in Galatians 3, a little bit earlier than just this last one, that the law was our guardian until Christ came. In other words, it didn't bring life, but it kept us there for life. Does that make sense? in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, the law bring us to where it revealed our need and our inability, our frustration that only in the face of God's perfect law that we just keep getting worse and worse and worse. In the face of all of that truth, we were ready for faith. We were ready for Christ. Right? Well, then another question is, is the law no longer important now that we are saved, now that it did its job, if you will, and brought us to Christ? Well, what do you think is the answer? Can anything that reflects the holy character of God that is in itself perfect, just, and good, and righteous not be important and valuable? Romans 2.20 says that the law possesses the very form of knowledge and truth. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. That tells me that the law is very good. Very important. But what you've learned today is that if you try to rely on God's law to save you, outside of the righteousness of Christ given to those who in faith have called upon Him, if you try to remain under the law, Paul says, watch out. If you try to change your children and make them believers by the rules of your home without Christ... Watch out. Verse 6 says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. To the Galatians, in chapter 3, verse 3 says, Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I hope you can see why you want to be free from the law. 
Not because the law is bad, not because it's sin, not because it's unimportant or invaluable or unrighteous, but because bound as you were to the law with the nature of sin using the law against you, you were in a never-ending cycle of ever-increasing wickedness. All leading to death before you were saved and ultimately as you were saved, as you will see, if you rely on that same cycle, if you try once having begun by the Spirit to try and go back to the broken system, and try to perfect yourselves by the flesh under the law, it will only produce flawed and corrupted fruit. That's what Paul's saying. The law can only stand as an unmoving mountain of purity and holiness crushing you under its weight. That's a picture I want you to have. One among many. A mountain of purity and holiness that crushes you under its weight. If we look just at the next few verses in chapter 7, verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. What does that mean? Remember I said that Paul in this chapter, in using flesh, is talking about that system of sin and values and so on. It's contrasted with the spiritual. What Paul is saying is that in this present redeemed state, he is still a creature to some degree of the flesh. Yes, you died to sin. That's what Paul has said in chapter 6. The reality is that positionally before God, you are now clothed in righteousness. You bear the name of his son, Jesus Christ. But there still remains, as verse 21 says, an evil that is present in you. In that inward man, says Paul in verse 23, you delight in the law of God, but at the same time your flesh is at war with the Spirit and wants to bring you back, wants to pull you back into captivity. Look at what he says starting in verse 15. I don't understand my own actions. Given the truth of what I've just said, I died to the law. I'm no longer under that system. Why am I trying to try and perfect myself by law? And not only that, why do I continue to sow to the flesh and it's in the sinful passions? I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I don't want, I'm agreeing with the law that it's good. And it's no longer I who do it, but sin that's dwelling within me, for I know nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. In contrast with that, I now, thanks to faith in Jesus Christ, I now have this desire to do what is right, not the ability to carry it out, at least if I try to perfect myself by the flesh. I so often find that I'm not doing the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You can see, it's like this uh, tug-of-war, right? And you can see his lament beginning in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war 
against the law of my mind, you can say against that desire. Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Wow, before Christ ever came in, before faith drew Paul to him, he was wretchedly oblivious to the fact that he was lost because we learned from chapter 1 that he suppressed the truth of all of that. There was something, you know, the internal conscience and more. He knew it, but, but he convinced himself and lied to himself that he was okay. But, but then when Christ saved him, he saved him to this painful dilemma, this painful tug of war. And if there was ever to be such a thing as a super Christian, wouldn't it be Paul as a candidate, learning from Christ, enduring afflictions, appointed by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles? We see uh, so many good things. He writes half of the New Testament, and yet this is how he describes his own battle. And if Paul struggled, I guarantee you that you and I will struggle. And how will we do that? In a myriad of ways. But given the context of the passage today, I want to suggest a rather insidious way that I've already hinted at earlier. Many Christians, having been saved from bondage to the law, having died to the law, start living as if they are still in bondage. They realize that they've been made new creations, And yet they still war, and they still war against a fleshly nature. Their natural thought is to subject themselves to the law. And more than that, they create new laws and new systems. No rules and regulations of righteousness. Do not eat, do not touch, wear this, don't wear this. Do this, don't do this. And they hold them up to the Lord saying, surely this will make me holier. And what happens? The sin nature that Paul describes in that last half of Romans 7, the one that is still present with us until we are one day raised to perfect life in the presence of God, it seizes the opportunity again. The same thing it was doing before. It seizes the opportunity and uses the very rules we create to produce even more flawed fruit. Do we not see that with the Pharisees? They created all sorts of new rules and sin seized the opportunity and made them hypocritical, self-righteous, judgmental, and convinced of their own worthiness before God. We do not want to repeat that error. We don't want to go back to the beginning of chapter 7 and put ourselves under the law. If you are a child of God, if his spirit dwells within you, then you have already been forgiven past, present, and future. You do not have to be re-forgiven every time that you sin. The requirement of the law has been fulfilled. God's wrath has been spent. You are no longer married to the law. The law could not lead you to greater righteousness. It could only point the direction like these unmoving railroad tracks. This way. And yet you had no momentum, no inertia. The law pointed you to God, but could not take you there. Only Christ can take you there. 
He is the train engine, if you will. He is the captain and the conductor. He can lead you to true righteousness. He washes you in the word of holiness. And that's why Paul in verse 25 says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the only solution. You cannot add to the grace of Christ by adding the works of the flesh. You cannot purchase extra pleasure of the Lord in you by purchasing prayer or, or Bible reading or church attendance or charitable giving. It's only through God's gift of faith in His Son, through calling upon the Lord to save you from the destruction that awaits you, that He will ever declare you righteous. And that is for the sake of Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, in Christ, nothing else. Only walking in the Spirit will produce good fruit. And here's where all of this has been leading. Turn the page, go to chapter 8, and I have good news. It's quick, and we'll pick it up next week where we leave off here, but it's good. There is therefore. This is the conclusion of chapter 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so, as we said at the very beginning, rejoice. You have no more need to be forgiven. You died in Christ. And I tell you this so that you won't keep falling into the trap of saying that I was saved and I need to be saved again. I tell you this so that you won't subtly fall back into the thought that by increasing and building upon the law that you will somehow better please God. I tell you all of this because that is the cycle of Romans 7. And what Paul wants us to do is not keep circling back through Romans 7. He wants us to move on to chapter 8. You are free. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you freed us in, in Christ. We're so thankful that Even as Paul writes, we continue to struggle in this war with our flesh, and yet, Lord God, you have already won the victory. And part of what we have to do is we have to realize that we can't keep taking ourselves out of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
Lord, you are already at work to will and to do your good pleasure. You are already at work to help us desire the right things. Lord, help us not to to go back into chapter 7. Help us not to go back into trying to please you through the law or to feel that we are still condemned by the law or to create even new laws. Lord, help us to respect and honor and love your law, even as David does, for what it reflects, which is your holy character. But let us also be thankful that we have Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.